This morning we start the book of Esther. We are done with Galatians. I also know that there's like 57 women in this room that went through this Bible study, and now you guys are all going to tell me why I'm wrong. But let me set the scene. It's 100 years after the Babylonian exile for God's people. Some have gone back to Jerusalem. Some have stayed. This story is about those who stayed. The story takes place in Susa, which is the capital of Persia. The main characters in this book are Mordecai, Hadassah, which is actually Esther, King Xerxes, and Haman. I hope this week you will read this book. Read it. Read, at least read chapter 1. Please do. If, if, if you want to get extra credit, read 1 and 2 so you'll be ready for next week. I'm not going to read chapter 1 for you this morning. I'm going to tell you the story, and we'll put some verses up on the screen. But I'm not going to read all 22 verses in a row. And because of that, please at least read Esther chapter 1 this week, because I don't want you to ever say, Sobek told us stuff that wasn't true, that wasn't in the Bible. I want you to read it so you can fact-check me. I welcome you to fact-check me. And if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. Like I said, I know a bunch of you ladies took that Bible study, so if Beth Moore disagrees with Sobek's song, you call me out. I'd love to have that conversation with you. So, chapter 1. Looking in verses, uh, you know, so it says that um, Xerxes was this king that was the king is ruler over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. It's a long, long, long mass of land, right? In verses 4 and 5 of the, of the book, first chapter of Esther tells us that Xerxes, in his opulence, in his, in his greatness, you know, in his tribute to himself, he threw two banquet feasts back to back. One of those banquet feasts lasted 180 days. 180-day party, right? The second feast lasted seven days. So for 187 days, this king throws a party. I don't know how you get stuff done in 187 days where you're just partying, but he's the king, so it's not like he can be fired, right? And the purpose was to show his greatness and his splendor. A couple verses describe how beautiful everything was decorated, how lavish the furniture was, how valuable the goblets were, and how Xerxes made a point to show off his wealth and goodness by insisting that nobody worry or bother about how much they ate or drank. Eat and drink as much as you want for 187 days. And you think, if you have a giant party where people are eating and drinking as much as they want for 187 days, that's a lot of food, and that's a lot of wine, right? There was no limit. And by the time everyone was good and drunk, because how could you not be good and drunk after 187 days, right? 
By the time that happened, Xerxes wanted to show off some more. He showed off his lavish kingdom. He showed off his opulence, his wealth. He showed off how good he was. And finally, he's decided, I want to show you the last amazing thing. And in verse 11, he calls forth his queen, Queen Vashti. And she was a beautiful woman. So beautiful, in fact, that the king wanted to show her off. Vashti is throwing a banquet of her own because men and women didn't throw banquets. I don't know, they didn't go to the same parties, so it's just all men and all women. Vashti is having her own party, her own banquet. And so Xerxes calls her forward and says, hey, I want to show you off. And, and Vashti goes, eh, I'm good. And she refuses. This causes King Xerxes to burn with anger. And being a weak king, because he really was a weak king, even though he was, had all this wealth and land and ability, he listens to whatever his advisors suggest. So in verse 15, Xerxes asks his advisors, what is the penalty for the queen ignoring my orders? And one of the seven advisors, Memucan, tells the king and the others that Vashti has not only wronged the king, but every other man in the empire. He tells them that before the day is over, that every wife in the kingdom will hear about how Vashti has treated Xerxes, and they will revolt with their own husbands. And so verse 18 Verse 18 says that there will be no end to their contempt and their anger. And Mimukin's suggestion then is to banish the queen, banish Vashti, throw a beauty pageant after you banish her, and then pick for yourself the most beautiful, the most intelligent, the most amazing woman that you can find. And write a decree that wives from this moment forward will only Obey and give respect to their husbands. Now, how does that happen? I don't know how that works. But if you, if you don't obey and you don't respect, and you don't treat your husband like they're a god, then you're in trouble. And he says that will restore order. That will ensure the men maintain their rightful spot as master of their domain. Right. So verse 21, the king and his nobles thought that made great sense. Of course they did. So they went with Memucan's counsel, and in verse 22, at the end of the chapter 1, it tells us that Xerxes sent letters to all parts of his empire, all 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, that all men should be the ruler of his home and should do and say whatever he pleases. And women should just subjugate themselves to their husbands. Chapter 1 of Esther. Well, let's talk about a few things in way of introduction to this amazing story. First and foremost, <clears throat> God is not ever mentioned in this book. In fact, because of that, 
Martin Luther, the one that was the, the founder of the Lutheran denomination, he did not believe that the book of Esther belonged in the Bible. It's funny, and I've said this before, that when reading great Bible stories, right, we, we, we get caught up sometimes and we, we, we kind of mistakenly mis, you know, place who is the hero in these stories, right? So if you look at Moses, right, we can say, oh, Moses, he was this amazing man. He came down and he talked with God and he is a hero of the Bible, or, or we could say Joshua. Joshua was a hero of the Bible. He led this God's people into the promised land. He took out all these battles and all these. Or we could say, you know, Ehud, one of my favorite Bible stories. You know, the left-handed guy, he stabbed the king, you know, the evil king. And, 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 and the king was so fat that the, his gut collapsed over the sword and he killed him and they left him there on the toilet. Like, and we say, man, look at how great of a hero Ehud is. Or, or we could say, you know, even... Even like Peter, Paul, we look at all these heroes of the Bible. But the fact of the matter is, and I hope that you know this, and I hope that I've said it enough that you understand this, <clears throat> those people are never the hero. Those people are never the hero. Who's the hero, folks? God is. There is nothing special about marching around a, 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 you know, a, a castle or whatever seven times and blowing horns and shouting, right? How does that make the walls fall down? God. Because God's the hero. God is always the hero. However, is, is it possible... For God to be the hero of a story when he is anonymous? When he isn't even mentioned? When we talk about anonymous, that's why the title of the sermon series is anonymous, right? So we talk about anonymous is the author of this book is never identified. Tradition has it that the core of the book is written by Mordecai, its main character, and the cousin of Esther. And, and that the text identifying the author was later redacted by the Great Assembly, which was a Jewish council. But we really aren't sure who wrote this book, for sure. So we have an anonymous God, we have an anonymous author, and we have an anonymous central character. Esther, she's not even mentioned in the first chapter of her own book. Esther aside, was her Persian name. Her Hebrew name was Hadassah. And you get, you get a nice little grovelly back in the throat thing. Hadassah, right? Hadassah was her name. And you want to guess what that means? The name Hadassah means hidden. As in Anonymous. So great, Sobek. Why are you even preaching this book then? I'll tell you why. Because although this book never mentions the word God, God is all over this thing. 
He is the hero. He is at work. And honestly, he works best when he uses unknown, anonymous people to accomplish his will while he works it all out behind the scenes. That's when God is best. So let me review for you what is going on in the days of Esther. You remember, of course, that God set up a royal line through the King David, right? David's son Solomon ruled after him, and the reign of Solomon was the golden age of Israel. Peace and prosperity for all. But after Solomon, things got bad. The nation could not decide who should be the next king, and so the nation divided. Ten northern tribes wanted one man, and two southern tribes wanted a different man, so the nation split into northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. Roughly 200 years after the division, the northern kingdom, because they were completely evil, they were conquered and carried off into captivity by Assyria. And the nation was never heard from again. Although the people themselves were not lost, and they are still in existence today. The southern kingdom, however, had a few good kings. A few good years of living and obedience to God, and so they lasted about 400 years. But at the end of that time, around the year 600 B.C., the southern kingdom itself was also captured and carried off into captivity by Babylon. It was during this time that Daniel prophesied, the the prophet Daniel, that he prophesied. And remember, he understood from the prophet Jeremiah that their captivity would only last 70 years, which was true. He also prophesied, by the way, about four beasts. Now, now this is not, when, we re, when we read Daniel, we think this is all about in the future, in the future, in the future. It's not. The four beasts that Daniel prophesied were actually four kingdoms that have already been, four rulings, four nations that dominated the world. The first was Babylon. The second was Persia. The third was Greece. And the fourth was Rome. Daniel saw some of this come to pass during his lifetime. He was alive when the Babylonian Empire fell to Persia, and Persia, under the rule of Cyrus, decided for many different reasons to allow Israel to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. And this happened in 536 B.C., which was 70 years. So a group of Israelites, about 50,000 of them, returned under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel to build the temple. They ran into complications. It took 60 years to complete. And it was not completed until Ezra arrived, as you can read about in the book of Ezra. And later, Nehemiah comes with, with more people to rebuild Jerusalem itself and her walls. Now, it is during this 60-year period this time span, when, and the temple is not completed, that the book of Esther takes place. Okay? I know, it's a lot of background info. The point of the story is to show that God is always working behind the scenes. And in fact, we know that it was Esther's marriage to the king of Persia that ultimately leads to the rebuilding of Jerusalem which we can read about in the book of Nehemiah. It is Esther's stepson that that signs the decree to build Jerusalem, 
which in turn fulfills Daniel 9.25-26, which says, Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to build Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with the streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing, and a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with the flood and war, and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. This prophecy sets in motion the coming of Jesus. The coming of the Messiah, and this prophecy was set in motion because Esther, because her stepson decreed that Nehemiah could go and rebuild Jerusalem. Esther was probably alive when all this happened. In fact, for all we know, Esther was the one who influenced her stepson to make the decree for her people, Israel, in Nehemiah 2.6. So, I have two thoughts from Esther, and they're going to be really quick, I promise. Number one, God is always working. God is always working. You are way maker, miracle worker, Promise keeper. Light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. God is here, church. God is here. He is in Afghanistan. He is in Haiti. He is in the U.S. And he is here with us this morning in this room. No building can house God. This place isn't God's house. It's not. No government can keep him out. And it drives me crazy when we say things like, well, we took God out of the schools. No one can take God out of the schools. Do you realize this? No one. Not one person can take God out of the schools. God goes where he wants to go, and he's everywhere. God is the way maker. He is the promise keeper. Jesus, Jesus is the light in the darkness. That's who he is. Church, they never stop working. They never stop working for us. Romans 8.28, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose for them. John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me not to do my own will. God is always at work. Always. Jesus, He didn't come here on His own. God sent Him to do a specific task to have a, and perform a specific mission with a specific goal. To be the sacrifice for the entire world and to set us all free. God is always working. Number two, 
God wants to work through you. John 12, 46, I've come as a, as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. This world is dark. Really, really dark. You all know that. Sex trafficking, war, the Taliban killing Christians, malnourished children, no access to clean water. The list goes on and on and on and on. So what is the answer? The answer is you. The answer is me. Us. That's the answer. John 6, 38, when Jesus tells us that he was sent by the Father to do his will, Jesus, 14 chapters later in John 20, sent all of us. John 20, 21 to 22, again he said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus has sent every one of us that call him Savior and Lord to go, to win, to grow, to send people out in the name of Jesus. That is our job. That is our function as a church. That's why we're here. God's desire is to work through you. And I've said it before, there is no plan B. There is no plan B. You're it. I meant the church. God used Esther. God used Mordecai. He used the prophets. He used Jesus. He used Peter. He used Paul. And the question for us this morning, will you let him use you?